a speedy recovery to King Charles of England. But rest in peace to CNN's King Charles and its ratings challenge debacle. Hello, everybody. This is William Del Pilar, and this is the Red, White, and Rude podcast. This is your road to understanding how politics is downstream of pop culture or culture. In other words, politics is affected by the entertainment industry, and the Red, White, and Rude breaks it down for you. All right. So, Thank you for tuning in. As always, do not forget, grumblingsmedia.com. You can find this, our political podcast and our sports podcast. You can also find us on YouTube and Rumble under the profile name Grumblings of Media, as well as traditional podcast outlets, Google, Pandora, Spotify, and Apple. So let's get to the show. <coughs> Excuse me. We are going to talk King Charles. As of January 6th, it's no longer listed on CNN's schedule. And we're also going to talk about the death of a, I don't want to say unknown, but a relatively unknown uh, name in Mel Torme. And then we're going to talk about the legacy of his major creation, co-creation, Sliders, and where the potential reboot we were hearing about stands today. Thank you for tuning in again, and let's get down to it. The King Charles ratings disaster continues. Oh, wow. Why did King Charles fail? Well, when you're bringing in a superstar, uh, NBA superstar Charles Barkley, whose NBA talk show is is incredibly popular, and you're bringing it with a... uh, entourage-driven individual in Gail King who has done nothing but ride the coattails to a multimillionaire's life by being Oprah Winfrey's friend. That's it. She has no qualities of note that proves she belongs with the job she has. But she does have the friendship of Oprah, and that's more than enough. So why did this show fail? Well, you're bringing in progressives to a progressive network that nobody's watching because it's a progressive network. So it doesn't matter what changes you make. And this was one of Chris Lick's uh, changes that he made before he was fired because his changes failed. In a nutshell, you got to remove what identifies as CNN today. And that's progressives, leftism, socialism, communism, false narratives. All that's proven. That's why their numbers are going nowhere. Chris Lick chose chose not to change any of that, and he gave us an old, tired show called King Charles. I give him credit. The name of the show is 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 aptly done. You know, Charles Barkley and Gail King. Again, King Charles, King Charles was the brainchild of ousted CNN boss Chris Lick. Lick recruited King, whom he had previously worked with as executive producer of CBS This Morning. King is still the co-host of that. It's now called CBS mornings. See, here's the thing about these networks. They will sit there and say, we're bringing a new show, we're changing this around, yada, 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 but still has the same entire people. So he decided to go with in-house talent within Warner Brothers Discovery as Barkley remains popular as a sports analyst on CNN's sister network, TNT. King Charles was a news discussion show. Technically, it still is. Hasn't been formally canceled. 
it was different from CNN's usual programming because it was less politics, more culture. As we all know, its inaugural guests included rapper Fat Joe and Golden State Warriors racist and bigot Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr supports the the the, the slavery uh, Muslim Uyghurs in China, all in order to make greater profits for the NBA. That's what Steve Kerr supports. He's a he's what you call your your racist that doesn't show it through his words but through his actions, and he's a bigot, and he's making millions along with black NBA players, but yet pretending they can relate to the poor. They can't. They never have, and they never will. It's propaganda. All right. Billy Crystal, Nisi Nash, Keegan-Michael Key, Corey Hawkins were other types of guests they had in terms of the entertainment world. And they also had political guests. Uh, they once interviewed Anthony Blinken, and they call individuals like him newsmakers. So they were hitting it from all avenues, kind of like what we're doing here at Grimley's Media, sports, entertainment, and politics. You know, I just got through doing a political podcast. I will be doing a sports podcast after this. So I get what Chris Lick wanted to do. And on paper, it was a great idea. Implementing it in the world they were in called CNN without making changes, it was doomed from the get-go. It was a talk show centered around news stories and cultural moments, not a straight newscast, as I just described. Uh, they were, again, interviewing political, cultural, and sports figures, and they took calls from media personalities. I guess that was one of their sticks, being able to, 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 to talk to people through a call-in, which is nothing. It's like <laughs> TV. It's not built for TV. We don't like it on TV when we're hearing somebody just talk. You want to see that person. So that was just a propaganda point that kind of failed. Again, it was a failure from inception. Seeing this, Top Brass sought outside talent to boost its ratings in a last-ditch effort, which turned out not to be successful. The outside talent obviously was King uh, uh, and Barkley, and at the end, they were really inside talent from Warner Brothers. You know, CBS worked with CNN, but they're political allies in propaganda, pushing socialism, co uh, communism, aspects of it, and that's what they do. And we'll be breaking those down in future uh, political podcasts. Now, episode one, had 501,000 viewers. It was the lowest rated program of the three main news networks. 140,000 less viewers than News Nights debuted the previous month, which is a show they replaced. This was CNN's lowest rated debut, debut in a decade. Episode two went, episode one, 501,000 viewers. Episode two, 466,000 viewers. There's a coveted demographic that they people always talk about, and that's the 25 to 54 demographic. When you're in your 20s, you still really haven't decided, uh, say, your favorite beer, your favorite cereal, your favorite car, your favorite whatever. So that's where they think they can come in and help you make that decision by giving you endless blasts of promotions for Bud Light. <laughs> or or as in the 70s, the, the commercial with the Dean Martin, the car. So so they believe they can get that at a young age. So I don't know why it stretches from 25 to 54. Because once you hit your 40s and up, you're kind of set. And yet that's the senior group is what has made CBS the number one network for the last decade and longer. So there's a demographic, 25 to 54, that they fight for. That is a prestigious demographic. Episode one, they had 139,000 in that demographic. Episode two, 115. They were falling. Episode three, they keep falling. 453,000 
total viewers compared to 501 in week one. They had 140,000 or 100, yeah, 140,000 in the 25 to 54 demo in week one. They had 109,000 in episode three. Episode four, it keeps failing, 465,000 viewers, 101,000 viewers. But they got a tick up in episode five, which was January 17th. So for all the 23, it was just falling ratings, falling ratings. Uh, you know, 48,000 loss from the four, uh, first episode in terms of uh, total viewers. That's a big drop. And, and the fact that it's CNN, you're only getting less than half a million. That's just an embarrassment. Episode five saw a tick up. 517,000 viewers. They gained 17,000 viewers from the first episode of 501,000. They had 117,000 viewers in the 25 to 54 demographic. And that was a bump up as well from, uh, uh, what was it, episode one? Uh, no, 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 no. They had 130,000, 40,000 in episode one. Episode five, they had 117,000. But it was a, a bump up of 17,000 from the previous episode of 101,000. I'm confusing you guys, so let, let me straighten this out. Episode five, the 25 to 54 demographic, 117,000 viewers. That was a tick up because in episode four, they only had 101,000 viewers in the 25 and 54 demographic. You combine that with the fact they had what, 35 plus 15, so they had about 50,000 bump up in total viewers from episode four to episode five. I don't know what happened, but something they must have had a great lead in show that people stuck around to watch King Charles. Who knows? But episode six and seven, it came crashing back down. Let's skip episode six. I'm bogging you with numbers. So from episode five, January 17th, which gave them an uptick, episode seven, two, a couple of weeks later, they were back down to, oh my gosh, to, uh, 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 to the lowest numbers ever. Episode 7 saw only 402,000 viewers. That's 89, and they only saw 89,000 viewers in the 25 to 54 demographic. That's the first time they've ever been below 100,000 viewers in that demographic for this show. That in and of itself is a, literally the immediate kiss of death. They lost 115,000 viewers from episode five. Wow. That's incredible. 115,000. That's total viewers they lost. There was a 22% drop in overall viewership from week five, 24% drop in the age group 25 to 54 from week five. And there was a 36% drop in the demographic of 25 to 54 from week one. I mean, that's that that that's a third of of of, of your audience. You cannot survive with the talent what you're paying them and the cost to do a show with numbers that keep dropping like that. This is what you call something that's embarrassing beyond words. As of 2624, so as of February 26th. 2024, the show is no longer on CNN's schedule. The irony is that the show replaced CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillip. Now that same show, CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillip, is replacing King Charles. <laughs> they also announced an overhaul of its daytime lineup, CNN This Morning. And that ends the Chris Lick dynasty. 
Look, this show was being beaten in the ratings by Friends, South Park, Modern Family, Everybody Loves Raymond. On the flip side, I gave you what? Their last show had 402,000. Look, Greg Gutfeld does 2.2 million total viewers and about 241,000 in the 25 to 54 demographic. Thus, that means a show like King Charles is doomed to eventual cancellation, unless they don't care and want to keep losing money, which was something CNN did tolerate for many years, and they didn't care until Warner Brothers took over and like, no, 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 this has the end. Now, King Charles, again, is no longer on the schedule. It's it's in and of itself canceled for all intents and purposes. These are the type of shows that CNN thinks can change their landscape. Again, I'm going to leave you with the fact that the only way to change CNN and bring its ratings up and keep it stable with a loyal audience is by becoming unbiased with your reporting. It doesn't matter. What's that saying they they, they, they used on Sarah, Sarah uh, 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 the VP for John McCain, Sarah Palin? You know, you can put a, a, a lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. You can sit there and disguise a show as being more hip, more hop, you know, more culturally relevant. But if it's still a show full of nothing but progressives and the face of progressivism remains as the new face of CNN, nothing's going to change. To change CNN, you're going to have to get rid of your leftist stars. You got rid of Don Lemon. You got to get rid of Anderson Cooper. You got to get rid of Aaron Burnett. You got to get just whack them off and bring in individuals with pretty faces obviously that's what sells look people that's an ugly truth you don't like it go to hell because that's how life works uh, uh i i'll be honest i don't want to see an ugly person on tv i mean who's gonna see a pretty person that's just how human nature works you know don't hate the messenger look in the mirror and realize the truth because you're not above it all even though you state you are god those are the worst people but anyway you're never going to change the face of cnn until you get rid of all those progressives bring in respected talent that is known as unbiased and build a world around them and cultivate your own talent with up and coming unbiased reporting. They can be leftists, but don't report in the news. Until that happens, anything they do over there will be deemed a failure as Chris Lick learned the hard way. And Chris Lick tried to play nice and didn't bring the hammer down and they turned on him and they threw him under the bus and he's out. What a moron Chris Lick turned out to be. Let's move on. Rest in peace, King Charles. Long live the king. <laughs> All righty, moving on. Sci-fi great Tracy Torme dies. Rest in peace. I want to give a hat tip to the Hollywood Reporter. They were the only news media with an in-depth article on this. And it's called Tracy Torme Dead. Slider, Star Trek, the next generation writer, was 64. Ah, Tracy Tromé, April 12th, 1959 to January 4th, 2024. He, he died over a month ago, but because of other priorities and other stories and other podcasts, I finally had time to talk about this because I wasn't going to let this one go. Science fiction writer and producer Tracy Tromé passed away at 64 due to complications from diabetes. Like 64 is still young. So I was stunned. I was also stunned that Tracy was a man. I never, when Tracy Tomei's time was before the internet got big and at our fingertips with everything. 
you know, his his heyday, it was dial-up modem, you know. So I never really had an interest in who, how he, what he was culturally, how his skin tone, his gender, none of that. So when I saw Tracy Tormey dead at 64, and then I saw a picture of a man, I was like, oh, never say never. No, you, you, you never know, you know. Uh, and Tracy is a generic name, so that's why that was the case. I just assumed it was a woman for some reason. I don't know. I was wrong, obviously. He wrote, produced, or consulted on various sci-fi films and TV shows. He attended Beverly Hills High School, USC, and Loyola Marymount Film Schools. Torme was a leading UFOlogist in Hollywood and a dedicated animal activist. It's like I'm reading my resume here outside of the filming, the schooling, and all that. But the fact that, you know, I, I, I've been a, a, a fan of, not a fan, but a had interest in ufology since I was like in fifth grade reading books in the public library on it. Uh, that's where I discovered Alan J. Hynek and, and Project Blue Book and things of that nature. And I am, and I'm not an animal activist, but when I get ready to go on my next journey, everything materially here on earth, financially speaking, goes to animal activist groups. He died in Escondido, California. Another irony, my first house I bought was in Escondido, California. I am 10 minutes away from Escondido, California. Escondido, California was once the, 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 the meth capital of America. You know, gang units did their experiments. The L.A. police unit or, or the Escondido police unit showed one or the other how to deal with gangs. Gangs were so prevalent here. But it had some beautiful spots, too. And its change is cleaned up. And I was shocked that the, the realized he lived in Escondido, California. I lived there for about 10 years. Again, I bought my first house there. Uh, so, so that was wild to see that. He had a sister and a brother who were both in the entertainment industry. Actress Daisy Torme, mostly voiceover work when I did my research, including the la latest incarnation of Superman and Lois, uh, uh, the cartoon or, or how whatever term they give cartoons today. His brother was a recording artist, James Torme, jazz vocalist. And he was the son of Mel Torme. Now, Mel Howard Torme was born in September 13, 1925. He died June 5, 1999, nicknamed the Velvet Fog. I did not know of his works, many of his works, but I knew the name. It was a very famous name. In our era, remember, three channels, not counting PBS, handful of radio stations that played all genres. So you, one, one radio station played all Rap wasn't, wasn't, wasn't prevalent at the time, but they played rhythm and blues, pop, classic rock. They played all the music in one. So odds are we heard, I heard Mel Torme growing up. He was an American musician, singer, composer, arranger, drummer, actor, and author. He composed the music for the Christmas song, which was Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, which is a world-famous song. And he co-wrote the lyrics with Bob Wells. Torme won two Grammy Awards and was nominated 14 times. Big-time songwriter. Uh, that's who his father was. So Tracy Torme came from some serious genes of, of talent. And it showed with his own uh, career. Again, who was Tracy Torme? He was the son of Mel Torme. Here's what you may find interesting. He was a writer for Saturday Night Live from 82 to 83. And that's the eighth season, which included Eddie Murphy, Joe Piscopo, Julia Louise Dreyfus, and Brad Hall, amongst others. And the point I say that, he was very versatile. Very versatile. He was paving his own way, career-wise, away from the Tromé name. 
He was then selected by Gene Roddenberry as a head writer for Star Trek The Next Generation. He wrote the episode The Big Goodbye, which won a Peabody Award. And it is the only episode of any Star Trek series, of any Star Trek iteration, uh, to win one of those. He was also instrumental in using the holodeck as a show's centerpiece. He served as executive story editor and creative consultant before departing. He wasn't there for the full run. Some of his other sci-fi work included being uh, as a writer and or producer. The Outer Limits reboot. Intruders was a miniseries. I want to, uh, can't remember where. I want to say CBS or Showtime. Odyssey 5, which was on Showtime. Carnival, HBO. The Phenomenon, which was a documentary. Spellbinder, he wrote the screenplay and it starred Tim Daly and Kelly Preston. So he did work with some heavyweight uh, actors. Obviously, they were television stars, uh, but they were heavyweights at the time. He did the movie. Fire in the Sky, he produced that with Travis Walton starring D.B. Sweeney and Robert Patrick. That was a hit movie based off the true story of a UFO abduction. I remember that. I went out and saw it. He was on Contact, played the consultant. We starred Matthew McConaughey, James Wood, and John Hurt. Big movie, big hit. And then he did one that most will remember, I Am Legend, in 2007. He wrote the original treatment and received co-producer credit, and that grossed nearly $600 million. So as you can see, this man had a career worthy of his own without being attached to the Torme name and the legacy of his father. He moved on from that and did a lot for himself. But his le his own legacy is a show called Sliders, <clears throat> which has become a cult classic, and it is what he is known for. And with that, let's move on. Rest in peace, Tracy Torme. Much love as you have begun your current journey that we will all eventually join you on. Much love and success on that journey. Let's move on as I now want to talk about his legacy, Sliders. Sliders is one of my favorite shows. It's a cool classic, as I said. It's a series which, which Torme created with Robert K. Weiss. It ran for five seasons from 1995 to 2000 on Fox and the Sci-Fi Channel. The show blends time travel, alternate dimensions, and adventure. Again, five seasons, 88 episodes. Torme was with the show for the first three seasons, and he left over creative differences. Fox didn't know how to treat this show, how to handle it, so they brought in a hatchet man. And from seasons three through five, it was as low budget, yet it tried to be as creative as possible, despite having a vile human being as a hatchet man. We'll get into who that vile person was. But the premise, the series follows a group of travelers using a wormhole to slide between Earth and the parallel universe. It was activated by a handheld timer device, and the slide technology was intended to return them to their home universe. They slide into one universe, then they slide back into their home universe. But their premature use of the timer, this is what makes it a series, caused the timer to lose track of the coordinates for their home universe. So they were stuck sliding from one parallel Earth in San Francisco in the same year they slid from into various different ones, not knowing if the next one would be their original home base. So in essence, they're forced to slide blindly. If they don't slide when it calls for, they could be stuck permanently. Uh, uh, They'd be stuck permanently or the next slide isn't until about 40 years later. You know, one of the characters is obviously late 50s, early 60s, and the other's 20s, you know, one in 40. So, you know, 40 years stuck somewhere would have meant death for some. 
The premise has them exploring whatever Earth universe they're in, and adventures abound. So in a nutshell, they were from 1995 San Francisco. So when they would slide into a parallel Earth, they would slide into 1995 San Francisco, whatever that Earth was. And they would usually slide in the same spot they were at and appear in the same spot, but on a parallel Earth. This concept is a win-win for all sides, the production slash budget side of doing the show. You're not looking at exotic locations. You're looking at the same location every week. But the storylines are endless. You know, it's what it, maybe there's a, it's a San Francisco where the Civil War went to the south, a San Francisco where Germany won World War Two, a San Francisco where the Wild West stayed the Wild West, a San Francisco where emerging technologies take over and then they control. So, so storylines are endless and it's a type of situation you're honoring some of these past events from a different perspective, showing the what ifs. And that's important, too, because nobody can tell you what if as fact or absolute, but it's fun to explore those dynamics and, whoa, what if this happened? Now, the original cast consisted of Jerry O'Connell. Jerry O'Connell is a child actor. Stand by me. You know, he's a host of The Talk now. Uh, and he's married to Rebecca Romijn. You know, he played the character called Quinn, a scientific savant who created the technology. Cleveland Derricks, wonderful voice, great singer, great actor, Tony Award-winning singer-songwriter. He's a singer who accidentally gets caught in the vortex. He, ironically, was the only cast member to stay with the series throughout its run. I get the feeling it's this. You're on Broadway. You're earning money, but you're not earning TV money. And at his height, he was earning 40000 per episode, so so 10 to 12 episodes a season. You know, he, he's banking half a million bucks a season for five years. You know, that's a few million. That's money he wouldn't see or wouldn't be guaranteed as an actor on Broadway or even in theatrical films. So he was smart. He stuck with the bread and butter, knowing he'd probably go back to Broadway and understanding the realities. Let me earn what I can here. And I applaud him for that. You know, Sabrina Lloyd played Wade, a character named Wade. She is now retired from acting, Quinn's friend of potential romantic interest. And John Rice Davis of Indiana Jones and Lord of the Rings fame. He played the character Professor Maximilian Arturo, Quinn's mentor and surrogate father. Actors that came later, Carrie Wurr played Maggie Bennett, Beckett, Maggie Beckett, a military officer from a different earth. Charlie O'Connell which is Jerry's brother in real life and Quinn's lost brother. Now, he came on because of <laughs> oh, Jerry O'Connell. That's the only reason they had him. I wanted to like him, and I did like his characters and what he brought to the table, but he was not a very good actor. Then there was Robert Floyd, who's gone on to become this master uh, bartender chef who has a thriving business as a bartender. But he started out as an actor, Robert Floyd. He was Quinn Mallory number two. In season five, because of budget cuts and the O'Connells decided not to come back, they brought in a new character who merged with his Quinn Mallory, merged with another Quinn. And that's how they wrote O'Connells out of the show. And they brought in a brand new actor as the Merge Bean. Then you had another character named Tembi Locke, Dr. Diana Davis, who was a scientist. And it's obvious that, that, that Tracy Tomei was following uh, Gene Roddenberry's script of having a diverse uh, cast. 
because as we move forward and forward in time, we see more diversity happen. And that's a good thing, you know. So the original cast, Jerry O'Connell was Anglo, Clement Derricks uh, uh, was uh, was black, Sabrina Lloyd is the woman, and John Rice Davis is the big fat guy who's a professor, who's Anglo. <laughs> so they had it all, the big man, the woman, uh, the black man, and the white guy. Carrie Wurr was a strong white woman, Charlie O'Connell, obviously Jerry O'Connell's brother, and Robert Floyd uh, uh, was emerging, so those characters stayed Anglo. But Tempe Locke was black, and she was the scientist who replaced the O'Connells uh, in, in many ways, and they still had Cleveland Derricks. So they kept a very diverse cast, and, and that's good for you progressives out there. For us science geeks, we always see this. And it's never bothered us because they never bring it in a uh, equity type way. It's always brought on as, hey, there's just qualified people to be here. You know, so if after it got canceled, it's kind of become a bit of a cult classic that transcended television. It had books. It had a novel. They novelized the, the, the pilot episodes. And then they had a book with it as an episode guide. It had its own soundtrack for sale. It had a 10-issue comic book series. Uh, uh, in fact, series star Jerry O'Connell wrote an issue. It had 90, it had trading cards, 90 trading cards. I'm not into trading cards, so I don't understand how that works. But it also had a lot of pop culture references in the Legion of Superheroes in the comic series. They talked, they mentioned it. A Fox comic strip, they mentioned it. The Marvel Comics Fantastic Four, the Family Guy television show, it had mentioned. So it transcended its five year 88 episode arc to become something more. And it's gaining popularity. And whenever they talk about restarting, rebooting a show, its name invariably comes up. First two seasons ran smoothly, but season three. Problems and departures. The show's first two seasons went smoothly, but Fox wanted it to be more action-oriented than thought-provoking, and that started with the third season. Well, Fox failed to realize you get more action, more cost of the show. And the thing about science and television and storylines, you can be very, very thought-provoking with action. It's a thought-provoking that makes it the science fiction genre. So the first star to lead the series was John Rice Davis, who brought and he brought gravitas. When I saw that he was gonna be in the show, my first thought, oh, Indy Jones or, or Raiders of the Lost Ark, or one of those two shows. And then you know, so I'm like, ooh, they're bringing the heavyweight. He gave the show gravitas, meaning it wasn't just gonna be a B show. In a in a 2016 interview, Rice Davis said the show could have been the best television show ever. However, the scripts he said he was given were incomprehensible gibberish. Fox exerted too much control over the scripts, he said, and he felt the writers weren't versed in science fiction, and they were just cannibalizing shows. So his final straw, what made him leave, was when he saw the writers doing just that, cannibalizing other shows. He saw them looking at Species, which is out on DVD, and figuring out, well, how can we pull this from that and put it in our show? It wasn't about honoring the show. Or, or, or using that idea to enhance their own show, just copying it because they were too lazy to write original stuff. You know, so Torme and co-creators Robert K. Weiss and John Landis departed the show during the third season. Now, a note here, Robert K. Weiss owned the production company that did Sliders, so his production company never gave up that contract. So he was technically still involved. He may have been not involved as a consultant in the storylines, et cetera, et cetera. So here's the vile human being they brought was David Peckinpah. He was brought in to replace Torme. He didn't want Rice Davis and drove him to quit. 
He is credited with beginning the end of the show's quality run that it had for the first two seasons. He was a hatchet man for Fox, who appears to have not cared for the show or its actors. Sadly, he was a drug addict, and he passed away in 2006 of heart failure brought on by a drug overdose. It was a tragic end to a man who brought tragedy to many. Ironic, karmic, you decide. But he was not very well liked. And he is the man who has been deemed as the destructor of the Sliders show. So Fox canceled the show and Sci-Fi picked it up. They canceled it at the end of season two. They, 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 Sci-Fi picked it up. In season three, four, and five, Jerry O'Connell said sci-fi wanted to maintain an action-based show with darker sci-fi elements. And that's fine. Oh, I'm sorry. They picked it up for the final two seasons. Uh, so sci-fi Peckinpah took over over Torme. When they picked up the series, he was the producer for the show. Now, Torme tried to retake control of the show, but they had just signed Peckinpah to a new contract. They could have moved Peckinpah to a different show, but they had no other shows. They were you going to use sliders to bring in a new audience that wasn't familiar with sci-fi. That was me, actually, the opposite way. I was very familiar with sci-fi. That's what I watched, but I hadn't watched sliders first two seasons. I had missed episode. It was on Wednesday nights. I was a sci-fi guy. I knew the times, those shows. So when they brought sliders on, I was thrilled. You know, I would be able to get the opportunity to catch up on the older shows. <clears throat> And watch the new shows as they happen. Sabrina Lloyd declined to return to the series when it was revived. The source claims Lloyd was fired because she was jealous of Carrie Wurr when she was brought in. Lloyd and Wurr did not get along. And it was largely due to what I have learned. Wurr was a diva on the set. She looked at the people who worked for the show as, in essence, her servants. You know? And what she didn't realize is that Sabrina Lloyd was engaged to one of the crew members. And when she made a snide remark, she was in essence making a snide remark towards her fiance, Sabrina Lloyd's fiance. Now, Peckinpah wanted to remain the three male ratio to one female dynamic from the first two seasons when it was Sabrina Lloyd and then the three men surrounding her. So, so long, Sabrina. Don't need you. I got Carrie, who I brought in, who had the body, and that's why I wanted her brought in, not for her acting talent, because I could dress her up every week, and that gives the prepubescent boys their thrill for the week. That's why Carrie were, was hired and kept on. Think about that. You're not kept on for your acting skills, but how you looked. <laughs> now, what makes Peckinpah vile is he, made, he took all this personally. So he put Sabrina Wurz, character's cute little girl next door look. She put her character Wade in a breeding camp. There was a there, there's a civilization called the Cro-Mags. I'm not going to get into them, but one of the, they were they were a big storyline in three, four, and five. But my point of bringing them in is they had a breeding camp. So it was his idea to put her in the breeding camp forever as just a piece of thing to get ravaged every episode. And that's the image he wanted you left with. Now, real quick, though, the Cro-Mags in the storyline are a species of technologically advanced and militaristic humanoid primates. The goal is to conquer parallel Earths and take back the world that humans drove them from. And I'm pretty sure that was Earth Prime, the Earth that all the characters are from, except for Carrie Wurr. So this was personal to him. And he cruelly and purposely left her character to rot. Now, he did this 
with with Rice Davies too. I mean, he like the guy died a, a, a violent, torturous, ugly way, you know, and he did that purposely too. You're not coming back. I'm gonna make sure you're dead in the most violent way possible. So again, it was personal to him, and he cruelly and purposely left her character to rot and gave his character a grisly, ugly death, purposely done so they wouldn't be able to bring him back. Life is ironic. A bad man dies in a bad way, a drug overdose. And as a loser, he was in real life. I feel for his family because they had to suffer his death. And nobody wants to see that. There were people who loved him. But you're not going to get much of any sympathy from the crew and actors from Sliders based on how he treated the individuals and, and people on that show. And when I say... Uh, 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 he was right up the road from me. His family's from Temecula. That's where they live now. You know, uh, that's where he lived. So that was just right up the road from Escondido. You know, but despite his want of leaving her there without telling everybody how she died, how Wade died, Sabrina Lloyd's character, there was enough public pressure. Remember, this was building up into becoming a cult show. So there was enough public pressure that they wrapped her storyline on what happened to her character in season five, the final season. So that was good of the people above Peck and Paw to force him to do at that point, even whether he was on the show or not. Season four, there were problems and departures. The O'Connell brothers left the series after the fourth season. They said to pursue film careers. In essence, what happened? They couldn't get what they wanted. That may not be necessarily true. Word on the street is they left because sci-fi substantially cut the budget. And Jerry O'Connell said he wanted to be executive producer. They said, no, you're not. You know, you're too young, and, and we're just not going to give you that. Because that would also give him another form of finance, you know. But that's normally done with stars. And it was still their number one rated show. And they still refused to give him that. And then the producers, and I don't blame them for this, they go, look, Jerry, we don't need you, or we don't need your brother if you're not part of the show. So they hung that over his head. But when you're young and dumb, and you've been an actor your whole life, and you think you're the star of the show, that's going to translate to box office Hollywood. He sat there and said, well, I'll go pursue my dream. You know, it's Kangaroo Jack and a couple of other minor B-movie hits were it, and Jerry O'Connell came and went. Had a couple of failed TV shows after that. Eventually got lucky and got on the top. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> when he left, they whacked his brother. So, and one of the other reasons he says that he left, or the word, word is that he left in articles during my research, that without Sabrina Lloyd, without Rice Davis, and without, you know, Tracy Torme uh, calling some of the shots and writing the storylines, much of the show's original premise had been lost. And he's right. The show completely changed from the end of season two through seasons three, four, and five. So I get that. But at the end of the day, he left because of money. He wanted more control, wanted more money, and he didn't get it. And they wrote him and his brother out. Season five was the final season, ended up in cancellation, despite the fact it was still sci-fi's highest rated show. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. Production, the production crew learned that the new network regime didn't care for the show. Again, despite being their highest rated program at the time, they had a whole slew of shows from Farscape to First Something to another show that they were pumping up. And they all failed except for Farscape. Farscape was another show they ended up canceling after five seasons. That was one of their top rated hits. The problem with the new fledgling network is money isn't always there to continue on or to keep 
with the rising cost of a show, no matter its popularity. And Sliders was one of those type of shows. So they, the, the network, so the production crew knew that the new network didn't care for it. Entering the fifth season, they knew that the series would not be renewed. So, and they knew this because Sci-Fi Channel has stopped supplying corrective notes for the episodes. What happens? The episode gets written up. The big wigs get a copy of it. They read through it. Can't do this. Can't do this. Can't do this. Can't do this. Yada, yada, yada. So it was believed they weren't even reading the scripts. And they tested this because one rule at the Sci-Fi Channel was you will not point a gun at somebody's head. So one of the producers sent in a, 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 a fully written script with a gun being pointed at somebody's head and they had been blown off. There was no pushback, no nothing. That's when they realized they weren't uh, reading the scripts. So as an FU to sci-fi, nobody really knows the true story, but logically speaking, and I'm not an idiot, neither are you, this was an FU to the network because they weren't reading the scripts. The production crew decided to sit there and end the show with a cliffhanger. Now, in most cases, you get a cliffhanger, you get the writing campaign. Nowadays, it's online with the email campaign, but you get a campaign to bring the show back. They weren't writing it for that. They were writing it as an FU to the sci-fi channel bigwigs. Well, we're going to leave you with a, with a cliffhanger because we know you're canceling the show. And so all these viewers are going to hate your show and stop watching some of their shows. It wasn't done for any reason but that. Now, they claim otherwise, but that's a lie. It's a way of getting back at sci-fi. And the season ended on a cliffhanger. I'm not going to tell you exactly what the cliffhanger is, but it deals with one of the members making it back to Earth and us not knowing how or why and the other members being stuck on the Earth they were at. And that's kind of where the cliffhanger ends. And I was extremely disappointed. And because of that, I've always been on the lookout for a Sliders reboot. Now, in 2019... Jerry O'Connell and John Rice Davis have spoken of a potential revival. Now, this is since 2019. Rice Davis says O'Connell has privately talked with him about the revival, and he would like the series to stay focused on the thought-provoking aspects of the alternate world, seasons one and two. And that would actually create a lower-cost show. You know, you have some action intermixed there. Now, the two have spoken to NBC about this as the rights to distribute sliders are believed to be held by NBC Universal, but no one knows. When companies get bought, break up, etc., some things like this and contracts and legalese wording, that falls through the cracks and nobody really knows who the new ownership is. Because unless it's explicitly stated, another party may say, well, this Comcast may own NBC, but there was nowhere stated that Comcast owns sliders. NBC Universal owns sliders. Sliders no longer exist. I'm just giving you an example. Maybe a bad example, but it's an example of how legalese works. I've dealt with legalese dealing with uh, six-figure jobs, and it's ugly, unfair, and it's one reason I'm not a corporate-type person. So they believe NBC Universal owns it, and they believe NBC Universal could incorporate sliders into the new streaming platform, Peacock. And that makes perfect sense, especially if it's a thought-provoking show. They don't have to deal with the Disney Plus crap of – Big-time special effects. O'Connell also said at the time that Torme was also interested in a revival, and that was true. In 2021, Torme stated in an interview that a Sliders reboot is actively in the works. He was on a show called Masters of the Genre. It's hosted by Gil James Bavel, a.k.a. Cardinal Sin, and they interviewed Tracy Torme. He interviewed Torme. Torme revealed that uh, 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 in this show that sci-fi fans like myself who are bored or repulsed by the continuous barrage of shows that put the latest fads and political agenda above good stories would not be the case here. What he's saying is the show would not be woke. 
No, I promise you, it will never be woke, period. Never, unquote. My concern with that is Torme has passed away and <clears throat> there's no gatekeeper that's going to give us great shows. I mean, take uh, uh, Quantum something. I forget the name of it. Uh, <laughs> Quantum Leap. That's such a woke show and the ratings show it. They renewed it, but they renewed it for political purposes. It's done. It's not doing well in the ratings at all. It's doing subpar. Why? They, they made it a woke show. The original Quantum Leap was woke, but woke in a way that we all appreciate. We understand the involvement of the, as us as human humans accepting other cultures, religions, races. You do, you should, they showed it in a very respectful way of all sides. And obviously, you always show it with the people willing to accept the change because you do have your black supremacists, you do have your white KKK supremacists, and but yet the masses are in the middle. And that's how Quantum Leap would show it. And that's how we all feel about it. Today's woke is white people bad, white people racist, white people worship blacks and Latinos. And then they tried to do the same thing with Asians, you know. Now it's Asians bad, you know, ever since affirmative action hearing that Asians won on to keep blacks from being racist towards them at the collegiate level in entrance exams. True story. So that's what Torme said would not be woke, was the premise of having propaganda shoved down our, our throats. And since he's passed, we don't know. So at present, Tracy Torme, the creator of the series, passed away, as I said, January 4th, 2024, from diabetes complications. Status of the revival is now uncertain. And that's where we stand, my friends, with Sliders. Sliders is a great show because it makes you think. It's a thought-provoking show. Most people today are not taught how to critically think. And because of that, when you have shows like Sliders that give you the whataboutism, the what if, that's what makes you start to think. That's what gets your brain moving, flowing. That's why I urge people to read novels, read scientific uh, papers. Well, not papers, but how they're translated into what's happening in your world technologically, politically, entertainment. Wise, read because there are opinions and they tell you what's happening. Uh, make sure you don't read woke opinions, but read it because watching these shows like a slider show that has a different sh uh, concept every week, it makes you think. It's critical. It's wonderful. And it's great entertainment where you're actually learning. You may not be learning about what the show's topic is about, but it's showing you how to start critically thinking. What if? What if? Why is this happening? What is happening? Yeah, what is it? the five whys, why, what, where, when, and how, or something like that with journalism. Those are important topics. And these, the show like Sliders gets you thinking that way. So again, much love and rest in peace, Tracy Torme. And we truly love and appreciate your legacy of the show Sliders that you co-created with Robert K. Weiss. Rest in peace, sir. Now moving on, some quick hints before we wrap the show up. <clears throat> We not only lost Tracy Torme in January, we just recently lost Carl Weathers, better known as Apollo Creed of the Rocky movies, and Toby Keith, a controversial, well, not controversial, but controversial to progressives who didn't like the fact he was very patriotic and very pro-America. Let's start with Carl Weathers. Carl Weathers was also a former Oakland Raiders player and played college right down the road from me at San Diego State. And obviously an actor, he died at the age of 76. Look, 76 is not old anymore. My dad is 91 and still kicking. He just celebrated his anniversary with, 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 with his wife, my mom, who's 85, I believe. They've been together for 58 
59 years. God bless them. And he is 91. So 76, I guess 76, as it's still not old. He looked great. He died peacefully in his sleep, February 1st, 2024. His claim to fame breaking in was Bucktown and Friday Foster. He has small roles in those shows. What they are, I had no clue. However, he was, as Apollo Creed in the first four Rocky films, he became a Hollywood star. And when those movies were out, he was a superstar in those moments. He played the role so well in the first film that once his character was fleshed out, audiences, we fell in love with him. We always wanted Rocky to win, but we wish Apollo wouldn't lose like we did. he did. It was one of those classic, we wish it could have been a winner in both ways. And then when he fought Drago, we're all rooting for Apollo. He became our champion in that storyline, despite all of us knowing he was going to get beat. And the first time you watch it, you didn't know if he was going to die because you knew to set up Rocky versus Drago. Apollo had to be part of the reason to get Rocky angry. And he died getting knocked out, boom, by Apollo. Man, Dolph Lundgren was massive at that time. He also became a meme. He was in the, the, the movie Predator playing a similar role. He played in Breitbart first brought this to light. He played at the heel in, in the Rocky series that we ended up falling in love with. And he plays the heel in Predator who you end up watching him gain redemption. But there was a handshake in Predator with Arnold. And that kind of became a meme. Some of his other films included Death Hunt. Obviously, Predator and Action Jackson, which was a black exploitation film. Look, as a Latino, I love those movies. They were silly. Down there, Jack Turkey. What you looking at, fool? The big old afros. It was. I loved it. I don't. And I'm not stereotyping. Those were the movies. I, as a kid, I fell in love. They were just. I was action. Bam! It was the equivalent of the black version of the kung fu show movies I used to watch on Saturday afternoon that were terrible. You know, you hear you hear the sword cut in the air. Whoa, whoa! It was all silly fun, and 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 that's what Action Jackson reminded me of, and that's what they were kind of going for. He was also in Happy Gilmore, played with comedic role, and I haven't watched it even though I have Disney Plus. I didn't realize he was in The Mandalorian for the last couple of seasons, and a great inspiration to Jeannie Carano, a very big conservative bastion in terms of being in Hollywood, and she's an actress who's been canceled but refuses to go down, who because of uh, partly because of, uh, of Carl Weathers' words to her, has chosen to fight back. Besides directing episodes of season two and season three of The Mandalorian, he was nominated for an Emmy in 2021. Sylvester Stallone gave us his comment, We lost a legend yesterday. My life was forever changed for the better the day I met Carl Weathers. Rest in power and keep punching. Unquote, Sylvester Stallone. And he's right. And God bless you, uh, Carl. You have begun your next journey and may many adventures come with that. We will all be joining you soon. And thank you for everything you gave us. Words that ring true. You know, quote, you know, Stallion, it's too bad we got to get old, unquote. Apollo Creed. I'll never forget that. It was at the end of one of the Rocky movies. I want to say Rocky 2. We lost the legend. After this podcast, I'm going to hunt down 
Jackson Jackson. It's time to watch it again. I haven't seen it since I was a birthing station. Uh, I'm sorry. I haven't seen it since I was in a birthing, which is what's called where we all sleep at. Watching it on the TV there with about 15 or 20 other sailors. Yeah. And, you know, culturally speaking, man, the brothers all love it. That was their guy, Action Jackson. It's one of those moments you recognize the importance of expanding our diversity into hit movies, into likable movies, entertainment that we all like and love, not the crap that here that knocks one culture to prop up another. That's all garbage, not action Jackson. Rest in peace, Carl. Moving on, Toby Keith. Toby Keith is a country singer-songwriter who died at 62, too young, after stomach cancer. In his family's arms, he passed away peacefully. He announced that he had this stomach cancer in 2022, so he fought it for a couple of years. Before music in the, in the 1990s, during the country boom years, is when the six foot four singer broke out. He was an intimidating president at 6'4". As a young man, Keith worked in the Oklahoma oil fields. The oil fields, he says, toughened him up and taught him about the value of money. And he learned that the hard way about saving money after he blew through all his oil fields money. As an 18-year-old man back in the 90s, earning 50000 a year. Dude, that was career. I mean, with inflation and all that, he's probably earning 120000 I mean, that's money you go to college to earn. He was earning it there and blew through it all. He played semi-pro football after that before launching his singing career. He played defensive end for the Oklahoma City Drillers, which was a USFL farm team, now defunct, obviously. He was his own man. They say he could be a polarizing figure. I said controversial. Polarizing is probably a better word. In Keith's case, it's because he wore his politics on his sleeve. He was an unabashed patriotic American, <clears throat> especially after the 2001 terrorist attacks, specifically 9-11. He called himself a conservative Democrat. He later on went to claim himself as an independent. He played for Presidents Bush, Obama, and Trump. In 2021, Trump awarded him the National Medal of Arts. But he did clash with celebrities and journalists during his career. He clashed with the Dixie hoes. I'm sorry, the Dixie chicks. No, I'm sorry. Now it's just chicks. Pop country girls. They started the fight, but Keith ended it. He had a, he ended it by always having a picture of Natalie Maines, who was part of the Dixie chicks, with Saddam Hussein being in the background of his concerts. That's how you fight politics. It's a propaganda war. He gave propaganda with the truth. They didn't like George Bush. At the end of the day, they may have been more right than we were in that case. But at the end of the day, Saddam had his own issues. And uh, the CIA, along with other intel alphabet organizations, gave us bad information. That weapons of mass destruction were there when right now we can't prove they were. I believe they were there. I mean, I'm... In the military, you you learn how the process works. If they were there, they had enough time to get them out of the country. And I, there's rumors and papers on that. So nobody will ever truly know. But you can't argue with the storyline that we didn't know and they told us there were, so we ran with the war, which we probably shouldn't have. But at the end of the day, Toby Keith, like all Americans, we were angry about 9-11. You know, uh, he also got into a spat with Ethan Hawke for lying about him fighting with Chris Christopherson. Record executives also often try to smooth over his rough edges, but he pushed back. One example is they wanted a six foot four masculine man who sings about 
country music and all the masculinity that comes with it, they wanted to go him to go more in a pop direction. Me personally, I think there were people trying to add that to 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 end his career uh, by doing that. His patriotic post 9/11 songs and his barroom tunes were popular. Those songs went against the mainstream narr- mainstream media narrative that begun after W won in 2000. You know, uh, uh, the Pajama Boy, uh, 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 the JJ <clears throat> uh, man that Obama epitomized and became and has pushed into our culture. He was also pro-military and a philanthropist. He went on 11 USO tours overseas, raised money for for soldiers, sailors. They built a home for kids and families battling cancer as well. His music, he sang love and drinking songs. He had a big, powerful, booming voice and a tongue-in-cheek humor. Willie Nelson sang a duet with him. Keith charted more than 60 singles. In 2001, he won both the Male Vocalist and Album of the Year at the Academy of Country Music Awards. Some of his songs and blunt opinions caused controversy, which he seemed to not avoid, not deflect on. He would take it on, front and center, meaning he would fight back and go, so what, you don't like it, I love it. In his 2002 song, Courtesy Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue, The Angry American, he sang, we'll put a boot in your ass. That's the American way. And that is American way. But political elitists who are destroying this country, who have allowed 30 million illegals, probably 50 million now when you count back to the Reagan era, in to dilute our country and our values. They didn't like that type of song where Americans were strong. The left and the wealthy also saw it as bigotry and racism. The destruction of our company is in place because these people want a global government, a global market. They want the haves, the wealthy, the elites, the powerful of the powerful to cause our shots, and they want us to fall in. Toby Keith didn't play that game, and they hated him for that because they wanted a weak America, not an exceptional America. Toby Keith understood it was an exceptional America that made him the multimillionaire and gave him the fame he never thought he'd see. And despite the current path that America is on, millions of Americans loved his song, his music, and they showed it in sales. You know, he created his own music label. He started Show Dog in 2005. The roster included himself, other big names like Tracy Atkins, Joe Nichols, Josh Thompson, Clay Walker, and Phil Vassar. <clears throat> he believed songwriting was the most important part of the industry. So did Freddie Prince of, of, of Queen. You know, in fact, uh, I can't quite remember, but I believe it was Freddie Prince. Freddie Merc- I said Freddie Prince, but Freddie Mercury of Queen also believed that, that writing was one of the most important parts of the industry. And when that would die, music would die. It would become generic, hollow, just recipe-based. And that's kind of how it's become, especially in the rap genre. So he thought music was more than just its words. He thought the, I'm sorry, he thought music was more than just a jingle, but music was power with their words. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, Toby Keith on cancer, he performed throughout his cancer treatments most recently in Las Vegas, as well as the 2023 People's Choice Country Music Awards. His words on cancer, cancer is a roller coaster. You just sit here and wait on it to go away. It might never go away, he stated in an interview with KWTV. And he's right. Cancer eventually took his life. And he saw this coming. You don't die that slow death without understanding. You tend to make peace with whatever you need to make peace with. And you realize and hope 
your next adventure is coming soon. And I say hope because at the end of the day, we never know what happens when we die. We have faith and that faith pushes and guides us. I believe that we are beings of energy and we move on to another realm, whether it's heaven, hell or whatever. And we continue our journey with new different adventures. And I believe Toby Keith probably thought that too. Toby Keith, dead at age 76. I'm sorry, that's that 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 that's Carl Weathers. Toby Keith. <laughs> I apologize, Mr. Keith. Toby Keith, dead of stomach cancer at age 62. Rest in peace. Thank you for everything you gave us and much love as you continue your next journey. And with that, my friends, we are going to end this episode of the Red, White, and Rude. A lot of death, Carl Weathers, Toby Keith, Tracy Torme, a lot of love. In terms of Tracy Torme's legacy of sliders, Carl Weathers movies, uh, uh, Rocky movies, Action Jackson and others, and Toby Keith and the music they gave us. Thank you, gentlemen. And until next time, my friends, do not forget, you can check out this podcast and others at Grumblings Media. You can check us out at YouTube and Rumble under the profile name Grumblings Media. You can check us out on podcasts such as Spotify, Pandora, Apple, and Google. Until next time, my friends, this is William Del Pilar for the Red, White, and Rude Entertainment Podcast. Until next time, I bid you adieu.